0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. It was Mrs. Frank's second period class. She was stern, but she was a kind woman, and I liked her. And she'd been gone for a few days, I don't remember for what, but we'd had a substitute teacher. And you know, subs just don't always know what's going on. I don't remember all the details, but I do remember what I did. I lied. And whatever I lied about, it let me and my classmates get out of doing something that we were supposed to be doing. When Mrs. Frank returned, it didn't take her long to figure things out. And boy, did she let me have it. Not in that kind of gentle, discreet way, but both barrels in front of the whole class. I remember it, and I can feel that moment even now. The intensity of her anger, the sting of her rebuke, the discomfort of her displeasure, my stomach warning me that breakfast was about to make an escape. Maybe you've wronged someone, and you felt that too. Uh, Nausea, a weakness in the knees, a shame burning a hole In the side of your chest, the desperate desire to just snap your fingers and be gone. There were consequences too. The principal's office, the dreaded call to my parents, sitting on the curb at recess, not once, but for the whole week, my friends keeping their distance, enduring the ridicule of my fourth grade enemies. That might as well have been an eternity for a 10-year-old. Regrettably, things were never the same for me and Mrs. Frank. I felt pained every time that I saw her, being as it was that I never quite owned up to what I'd done, and I didn't yet have the categories for sin, for sin as an offense against God, for sin as an offense against others. I just knew that for some reason, every time I saw her in the hallway, I felt that pained sickness return. Not because I despised her, but because I had wronged her and my classmates and my parents and that poor, nameless, substitute teacher. But I couldn't work out what was to be done about it. And while that fourth grade experience was the first time that I remember feeling pain because of sin? It certainly wasn't the last time. I won't ever forget it. And I shouldn't. Those feelings are a merciful reminder. They're a merciful reminder to me that sin messes everything up. Sin is not benign. It's malignant. It brings fearsome consequences, and oftentimes great pain. And it's only by God's mercy, it's only by God's mercy that we are saved from the wrath that is justly due us for our sin. That's what Psalm 38 is about. If there's a warning in the Bible that tells us about the physical consequences, the emotional anguish, the relational alienation from God and from others that's caused by sin, then this Psalm is it. Friends, sin messes everything up. But Psalm 38 also reminds us that the pain that comes about in our lives as a result of sin is often God's mercy in disguise. Because pain leads us to find refuge in Christ. So that's the outline. Sin messes everything up. Pain is God's mercy in disguise. And only God's mercy saves us from God's wrath. Those are the, those are the three points. So let's pray together and look at this psalm. Lord, the psalmist says, Who can discern his errors? And he prays as we do even now, that you would declare us innocent of hidden faults, that you would keep back your servants from presumptuous sins, that you would let them not have dominion over us. Work in us, we pray, by your Spirit, and point us to the mercy that is ours in Christ Jesus. Because we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 38 is a painful psalm, but we need the reminder. In fact, that's what the prescript says. Look at verse zero. It says, of David, for the memorial offering. Literally, it reads in Hebrew, of David, to cause to remember. When we read this psalm and we see David's pain, we're supposed to remember the pain of our own sin, how sin messes everything up. Psalm 38 is a lament, and because we're going to run into several laments in the coming months, it's important just for a minute to briefly define what a lament is. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. And almost all the laments in the Bible have the same features. In the midst of pain, the person turns to God in prayer, he brings his complaint, he asks for relief, and then he trusts in God for salvation. He trusts that God will deliver. He trusts that God will answer. Sometimes we experience pain because others sin against us. And the Bible gives us laments for those kinds of circumstances. In Psalm 55, in fact, David has been abandoned. He's been betrayed by his closest friend and so he turns to God in prayer. He's in deep emotional anguish. He's feeling the relational consequences of another person's sin against him. He's in physical danger because of his enemies and he cries out to the Lord. His pain is the result of being sinned against but sometimes we experience pain because of our own sin, because of our own sin against God and against others. And the Bible gives us laments for those situations too. In Psalm 38, David is in pain because of his sin. It's a lament over personal sin. Look at verses three through four. David says, there's no health in my bones because of my sin for my iniquities have gone over my head. They're like a heavy burden, a heavy burden that is too heavy for me. As David eased into sin's shallows, perhaps he thought, I can handle this. Nobody needs to know. But the dark waves were soon washing over him, above his hopes, above his strength, above his Life, sin rose in terror. And so David is utterly sunk under the flood of his own iniquities. And his sin has not led him to green pastures, it's not led him to still waters, but to the very precipice of his own destruction. And now, no longer able to ignore the pain, he stands looking over the edge, realizing that catastrophe is about to come. Look at verses 17 and 18. David says, For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity, and I am sorry for my sin. Throughout the psalm, David describes the physical and emotional and relational consequences of his sin in pretty lurid detail. He says, verse 3, there's no soundness in my flesh or health in my bones. The phrase, no soundness in my flesh, he repeats again in verse 7 and can be translated, my whole body, my whole body is sick. The wounds that his sin has brought about, he says in verse 5, stink and fester. And verse 7, he says his sides are filled with burning but added to the physical suffering is his emotional anguish. David, verse four, is burdened beyond strength. And verse six, utterly bowed down and prostrate. His suffering is such that he's like a dazed man, utterly humiliated by his plight, who, verse six, goes about his whole day in a state of mourning. He feels, verse eight, feeble, crushed, literally groaning, roaring because of the groaning of his heart. Not only is he in physical and emotional pain, sin has alienated him from his closest relationships. Look at verse 11. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand afar off. His enemies verse 12, are watching. They're ready to seize the advantage. They say that he is ruined. The wicked, verse 20, even say that this suffering has come about him because he follows after God. Essentially, they're saying that this punishment, this pain is punishment from the Lord. And this is what you get when you follow after the Lord. The physical, emotional, and relational consequences of his sin have so deadened his soul that David is nearly useless to himself and others. Look at verses 13 through 14. I am like a deaf man, and I do not hear. Like a mute man, I cannot open my mouth. Truly, I am like a man who cannot hear, and whose mouth can make no reply. Friends, Don't be fooled. You may be tempted to think that your secret sin has little effect on your life or on the life of others. But this is what sin really does. When we cultivate sin in the garden of our soul, like a wicked weed, it spreads its branches and chokes out our spiritual life. And there are no exceptions. And Psalm 38 is a warning, a warning of dire consequences for personal sin. Sin messes everything up. No one in history has labored more diligently to unpack the nature and the effects of sin in the life of the Christian than 17th century pastor John Owen. Listen to how he describes David's condition. In Psalm 38. He says, if sin has lain long, corrupting in your heart, if you have suffered it to abide in power and prevalency without attempting vigorously the killing of it and the healing of the wounds that you received by it for some long season, your sickness is deadly. Have you permitted worldliness, ambition, greediness, Or uncleanliness to devile your heart with vain and foolish and wicked imaginations for many days? So was the case with David. When a lust has lain long in the heart, corrupting, festering, infecting, it brings the soul to a woeful condition. For eight years, Owen was chancellor of. Oxford University, and he regularly preached to college students, and he regularly preached to college students on this subject, on sin and temptation. In fact, his sermons became a book called On Sin and Temptation. And in it, Owen describes five things that happen when we cultivate rather than kill sin in our life. So listen to to what he says. First, he says, sin weakens our soul and deprives it of its strength an unmortified lust Owen says will drink up the spirit and the vigor of the soul and weaken it for all duties cultivated unmortified sin makes us less interested in prayer less motivated for spiritual exercise less eager for spiritual conversations less active to do good for our neighbors. Sin weakens and deprives our soul of its strength. Second, he says, sin replaces the love of God with the love of itself. Owen says that sin lays hold of the affections, making itself beloved and desirable, and so expelling the love of the Father so that the soul cannot uprightly and truly say to God, You are my portion because it has something else that it loves. So when we give space to things that we know dishonor God, lingering over an evil thought or cultivating a grudge or assuming the worst about someone else, we shouldn't be surprised to find our affection for Christ cooling. Sin replaces the love of God with the love of itself. Thirdly, Sin occupies our thoughts with tactics about how to gain more of it. This is a really interesting point. He says, thoughts are the great purveyors of the soul. They're the great suppliers of the soul. They bring in provision and satisfy the soul's affections. And if sin remains unmortified in the heart, our thoughts must always and ever be making provision, not for the spirit, but for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. In other words, our minds are created, designed to refresh our soul with thoughts of God, his beauty, his faithfulness, his truthfulness, his loving kindness, his holiness. But sin chokes out these thoughts and occupies us in self-centeredness and worldliness. So sin occupies our thoughts with tactics to get more of itself. Fourth, sin breaks loose and hinders our Christian walk. Owen writes, the ambitious man must always be scheming. The worldly man must always be manipulating. The sensual and vain man providing himself vanity when they should be engaged in the worship of God. In other words, sin hinders our spiritual life by stealing the time, the energy, the affection that we need to walk with Christ. Sin breaks loose and hinders our Christian walk. And finally, he says, sin darkens our soul. It is a cloud, he says, a thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. It takes away all the sense of the privilege of our adoption. And if the soul begins to gather up thoughts of comfort in Christ, sin quickly scatters them. So sin darkens our soul. Friends, sin messes everything up. And if we are cultivating rather than killing sin, then we can be assured that it will choke out our affection for God. That's why Owen is probably most famously known for saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no third option. So maybe like David, you're trapped in sin and it's crushing you like a vice. You are so eaten up by your iniquities, so weak, so tired that you can't even think. The rebukes and the exhortations of others, are falling deaf on your ears. You've stopped preaching the gospel to yourself and you certainly have nothing of of value to help others. The physical sickness, the emotional anguish, the relational alienation, all of that is a message. It's a message to you. The pain you feel like an arrow to the heart is designed to tell you that something is wrong because pain is God's mercy in disguise. That pain that I felt when I saw Mrs. Frank in the hallway, it told me that something was wrong, that my deceit was wrong. That pain showed me my sin, and like an arrow, it lanced my infected heart. Pain is God's mercy in disguise. And David knows that the pain that he's experiencing, the sickness that has overtaken him, has come from the Lord. Look at verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows, your arrows, have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. The suffering that David is experiencing has come from the Lord. It is Yahweh's arrows that have pierced him. It is Yahweh's hand that is resting heavily on him sometimes it feels, friends, like God is killing us. The pain that we feel because of our own sin or because of the sins of others can tear at our very heart. We feel as though we are under attack, trembling under a barrage of arrows. But God is an expert marksman. He doesn't shoot to kill us, he shoots to kill what is in us. His arrows are painful, but that pain is his mercy in disguise. The author of the letter to the Hebrews tells us that God's corrective discipline in our lives is an evidence that we are his sons and daughters listen to Hebrews 12 verses 7 through 11 God is treating you as sons if you were left without discipline then you would be illegitimate children and not sons we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live for our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Here's how Jesus says it in John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. He prunes that it may, may bear more fruit. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so be my disciples. Pruning is painful. A skilled gardener cuts off way more than novice gardeners thinks he should. Pruned vines. Look sore, but stripped of wanton growth, they grow strong and fruitful. And God's arrows, sunk deep into the heart of our sin, kill what would kill us. They destroy what replaces our affection and eats up our time and darkens our soul. Spurgeon writes, in truth, God shoots at our sins rather than us. And those who feel his sin-killing shafts in this life shall not be slain with his hot thunderbolts in the next. Friends, make no mistake. God is angry over sin. Sin deludes, it deafens, it debilitates, and it destroys. At the very heart of sin is the elevation of created things over Creator who is blessed forever. Sin is being satisfied with the shadow rather than the substance. It's choosing earthly life on our terms rather than eternal life on the terms of the one who created us, who created us for himself, to know him, to love him, to delight in him, to be with him for eternity. Sin promises what only God has the power to give. Sin is a cheat. It's a defrauder. It's a beguiler. But God is all hope, is all joy, is all comfort, is all peace, is all satisfaction. So when we feel his sin-piercing arrows, painful as they are, we know that his corrective discipline is saving us from eternal wrath because he has in fact fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so if this morning you are suffering under sin, you're suffering unrepentantly under sin because you don't know Jesus, hear what Paul tells us. Behold now, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. We implore you on behalf of Christ, on behalf of Christ Jesus, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin in order that we might be the righteousness of God. Friends, if you don't know him, you can only find refuge in him. So if this morning, do you feel David's pain? Your neglect of your spouse? The rude word you said to a hurting brother? The unethical compromise you made at your workplace? The website that you looked at that you shouldn't have? The growing resentment against your dad or your brother or your sister or your mother or a close friend? A, a growing devotion to toys or to leisure? or to winning, or to independence. The pain that you feel, that dart that you feel is God's mercy in disguise. Are you sick? Listen to me very carefully. Not every sickness is the result of sin. Okay? Not every sickness is the result of sin. But David is sick because of his sin. That's what he tells us. Sickness can be a result of sin. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that the reason that some of them are sick and that even some of them have died is because of their sin. In fact, the Lord can and does discipline us through sickness. Listen to James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Is any of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, now listen, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. In other words, James clearly believes that there's situations where sickness has come about because of sin. And so while not every sickness is the result of sin, every sickness in our lives, every sickness in our lives is an opportunity, is a call for self-examination. We should ask, Lord, is there anything that needs to be brought into the light? James goes on to say, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another in order that you may be healed. So don't ignore the pain. Don't ignore the sickness because God wounds to heal. God afflicts to restore. Pain is God's mercy in disguise. And finally, only the mercy of God can save us from the wrath of God. David tells us that he's in pain because of his sin. And what does he do? He doesn't promise to do better. He doesn't plead the merits of an otherwise righteous life. He doesn't try to find relief in entertainment or work or self harm or sex. In his pain, he turns to God for salvation. Only the mercy of God can save him from the wrath of God. Rather than murmuring to himself or grousing to a friend or venting his spleen on social media, he brings his complaints to God. Lord, Lord, do not continue rebuking me in your anger or disciplining me in your wrath. You, O oh Lord, for you I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. David knows that God has afflicted him, that God's arrows have pierced him, that God's hand rests heavy on him. And David also knows that pain is God's mercy in disguise, prompting him to go to the only place where help can be found. And so he unburdens his heart before the Lord. Verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin he confesses and he trusts look at verse 21 and 22 lord do not forsake me oh my god be not far from me make haste to help me o oh lord my god my salvation verse 15 but for you o oh lord do i wait it is you o oh lord my god who will answer david's prayer in pain leads to trust When we recognize our sin and our need for help, we turn in faith to the only one who can help, to the one who has promised us that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous, who died for our, who is a propitiation for our sin and not for our sins alone, but for the sins of the whole world. The pain we feel is God's mercy in disguise. It prompts us to examine ourselves, to remember that we belong to God, to confess and to make war against sin in our lives. And it reminds us that salvation from sin is found only in the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so in closing, I want to speak specifically to two people this morning. If you are a struggling sinner... feels discouraged by your slow progress in your battle against sin, remember that the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, is on your side. He has called you before the foundation of the earth to be his son or daughter. He loves you with an enduring and an immeasurable love. And at the cross, He secured you forever by the blood of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is yours. His victory over sin and death is yours. His sanctifying, comforting, empowering spirit is yours. Friend, remember that your adoption, that your justification is the cause, not the effect of your sanctification. Press on. Press on in putting sin to death, knowing that Christ Jesus has made you his own. And if you're sitting here this morning thinking, Ryan, you have no idea, you have no idea what I've done. I've done unspeakable things. There's no way that God can accept me. Or I've walked away from Christ and I'm, I'm too far gone. If that's you friend, listen closely. The pain you feel this morning is God's mercy. And the moment that we are at our worst, when we could not be more detestable or more distant or more dirty or more damnable, that is the moment where Jesus' love is the greatest and his power to save is the strongest. The Lord Jesus himself says to you, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You don't need to clean yourself up, friend. Jesus is enough. If you are burdened, then you're qualified to go to him. All you need is to run to him because he says to you in John 6, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. And so for all of us, all of us, who sin and who need mercy, Jesus is enough. There's salvation in no other name. And that's what brings us to the table when we come to the table, we're reminded of what we learned in our series in First Peter. We remember that Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember what Paul tells us, that in Christ, In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so this moment is holy and it's sobering because this morning, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're invited to this table. But if you don't know him, would you take the moment and rather than receiving the elements, Would you consider the mercy of God? Would you consider the warning of God? Would you consider the salvation that is yours if you call upon his name? His body is true bread. His blood is true drink. Let us serve you.